You're listening to TIP. We have a very special guest today, and that is investing legend Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy is the co-founder and chief investment strategist of Grantham, Mayo, and Van Otterloo, or more commonly known as GMO. I last spoke with Jeremy almost exactly a year ago on episode 371, and a lot of what he had to say made it onto my top takeaways episode at the end of the year. I highly recommend you revisit our last conversation just to see how prescient his predictions were at the time. In this episode, I wanted to get Jeremy's thoughts on how the markets have materialized since we last spoke, but I also wanted to dive deeper into his knowledge on climate change and the technology emerging around it. In this episode, you will learn where Jeremy thinks we'll go from here, why he believes rates will climb higher for longer, how today's market and economy may start to resemble the stagflation of the 1970s and 80s, why important resources are in short supply, the best technologies fighting climate change, the risk in emerging in other markets outside of the U.S., and a whole lot more. Jeremy is one of my all-time favorite guests to have on this show, and I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jeremy Grantham. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And today, I'm so excited because we have a very special guest for you, and that's Mr. Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's been almost exactly a year since uh, you and I spoke. And back then you were ringing this bell that we were nearing a market top. And the signs you saw at the time were this rapid price appreciation, wild behavior and speculation, the meme stocks, etc. And you gave this wonderful metaphor that stuck with me about the stock market having these termites that eat away at these high-flying tech stocks first. And that appears to be exactly what we saw happen. So as soon as the Fed came out with their plans to tighten, you saw the tech sector just get crushed immediately. And it's down about 27 or so percent now at the time of this recording. This all seemed to kick off right at the top of the year. So now we're halfway through the year and the S&P is down around 20% today. What has surprised you the most about the price action that we've been seeing since the top of the year? Well, I would argue that the termites got into action quite a bit earlier than that. Um, you expect them to go for the juiciest speculative things first. And uh, the king of the specs, in my opinion, was my own ill-fated quantum scape. That peaked out in December 2020. It was the leader of the gang. It came at 10, like all SPACs, went shooting up to 132. At 132, it had a market cap of 55 billion, bigger than General Motors and bigger than Samsung. QuantumScape, a very good research lab working on a solid state lithium ion battery, half the weight and volume, rapid charge, no fire. It would be very nice if it worked out, but Back then, it still had four years to go before it had any sales or any profits, and it sold for more than General Motors. You have to admit, that is a candidate for the biggest spec of the cycle, bigger than anything I can find in 1929 or 2000. Got to remember in 2000 that the pet.coms were scores of millions, or in a few cases, a few hundred millions. This was 55 billion, adjusted for inflation, adjusted for anything. That was a monstrous 
a demonstration of uh, the ability of the market to think deep, deep into the future and have positive thoughts. Anyway, that peaked out in December 2020. In January 21, the number of new issues peaked. In February, the outperformance of the new issues peaked out. And in February, uh, also ARC peaked. ARC, a exchange-traded fund of about 30 growth stocks that are very early stage growth. Most of them had no no earnings. So that was exactly where the termites would be expected to go to work. And then a month or two later, the meme stocks uh, with little or no earnings, like AMC and uh, GameStop, they peaked out. And the whole Russell 2000, although it technically peaked in November, by early February of 21, it was about the same. It plateaued uh, for uh, over 10 months, almost 11 months of 21 before going down. So they had been rolling over and 40% of the NASDAQ before December 21 were down 50% or more. So anyone who was into deep speculation uh, knew very well that the bubble had started to lose air long before uh, the end of 21. That's one point I'd like to make. Secondly, the first half of this year is about as fast as stock markets ever decline. I remember seeing that the first four months was the fastest decline in the S&P since 1939, when I was one year old and they were preparing for World War I. Uh, so that's a pretty good excuse to go down. And this was the fastest decline. This is about as fast as markets go down. And they always have good rallies. There's nothing as quick and uh, spectacular as a bear market rally. They had one in late 1929 to early 1930, an absolute doozy of 45%. And of course, with historical hindsight, they signify very little. But at the time, they frighten the pants off the bears and they give hope that all is over, all is forgotten, and it's back to the races. And I suspect we may very well have a pretty decent bear market rally as we sit. I wouldn't be surprised if this went on for at least uh, another month. Interesting. Just on that last point there, is there a certain floor? I know you're a big fan of reversion to the mean. Is there a certain uh, floor that we might bounce from or that you're kind of expecting things to capitulate at? In terms of the entire bear market, it uh, would be unusual for it to uh, bottom out anywhere near uh, this high. I would expect that by the low, that the S&P would have declined by 50% uh, from the peak in real terms. So you do have to adjust the stock market for inflation. And also the trend. The trend in the market is a little over 4% a year. And as time passes, you should put that into the fair value. So a year from now, when the bear market might end, the uh, trend line value would be uh, almost 3,000 on the S&P. Of course, there's no rule that says you stop at fair value. Uh, typically, in previous big bubbles breaking, they go down below that. They went down below, of course, in the housing bust of 09. And they went down in, in every great bear market break, they went below trend, except Alan Greenspan's a specialty in 2000. In 2000, the S&P was heroically overpriced. It came down 50%. But at 50% decline, it was only fair value. It only hit the trend and then bounced as the Fed raced to uh, re-stimulate. The Nasdaq went down 82. And that's a lot of pain. And it's possible that would do that again. But you do have to adjust for inflation. There was very little inflation around in 2000. But this time, with inflation running at 8 or 9, it does move the nominal value of the S&P upwards. And one shouldn't lose 
I'd like to stay on this idea of fair value for just a second. So I've heard you say that today's market action looks superficially like the dot-com bubble of 2000. But one really interesting thing about that market was that the internet stocks were sometimes hardly even creating revenue, let alone profit, right? So it wasn't terribly difficult to see that these companies had a high cash burn and they were running towards a cliff. The main companies that survived are all now wildly profitable and some of the best business models the world has ever seen. So given the recent decline in the NASDAQ and you know the mainliners that are making up 20% of the S&P 500, do you think any of them are nearing a fair value now? I don't include the classic fangs as being in the super speculative category. I think you could throw Tesla in at its peak. That was super speculative. Great company, but uh, a bit of a silly price there. But the others, like Amazon and so on, they uh, I wouldn't. I, I would. They're great companies, but I wouldn't have included them as super specs. And yes, they're down quite a lot. It's hard in a bull market to get your brain around what happens in a, in a bear market. Let me go back to Amazon. Amazon uh, in the 2000 bust didn't just come down as its sales continued to grow. Of course, in those days, it didn't have earnings because it was running on borrowed resources. It didn't have to. It was still growing like the wheat. It came down uh, 92%, 92% with strongly rising sales. A brilliant, successful new idea that went on to own the world and be worth a fortune. So how is it possible it came down 90%, 92%? So think about that sometimes as you go to bed. And I like to say 80% of the time, the market is pretty sensible and doing a possibly good job of estimating value for all the companies. A little under 15% of the time, it gets carried away with optimism. And by the end of that time, has nothing to do with actual earnings. It's all in the head, projecting out hundreds of years into the future, assuming that perfect conditions will stay perfect forever. Every bubble takes place with near perfect conditions and huge profit margins. And the market runs with that and assumes it will stay there forever. And of course, conditions mean revert, profit margins mean revert, and good times become bad times. And that is a problem. And the remaining 5%, the market gets carried away on the downside and starts to uh, be completely irrational, as it was beginning to be in March of 2009. It was getting pretty silly, pessimistic. I wrote a piece, Reinvesting When Terrified, that by sheer luck came out the day the market hit, hit its low. And it said, get a policy, get a plan, present it to your committee or yourself and start to throw your money back into the market. You feel paralyzed. Everyone always does. And now's the time to wake up. The market is cheap. And of course, that happened in 1974 and 82, which were classic lows when the market got down to 7 PE. And what I call terminal paralysis sets in, where you're so frightened, you can hardly move. You can hardly get to work, forget, buy stocks. And that's, of course, as Warren Buffett would have said, that's exactly the time you have to do it. Uh, And it's only 5% of the time. They are much quicker than the uh, crazy bull markets. Now, I know you're a a huge skeptic of the Fed. Have the Fed's rate increases and tightening efforts on the market or the market's response surprised you in any way? No, I I expect the Fed to be behind the curve, uh, to be deep into uh, optimism. And um, it doesn't really have a clue about market bubbles and the damage they do when they break. They've been eager now since 
early Greenspan to encourage bull markets because they help the economy. They really do. And they always forget that the bear markets to go along with them hurt the economy at just the wrong time. So if I'd been asked to bet, would the Fed get inflation wrong when inflation came along at any time? I would have said, of course, they'll miss it. They'll be late. Their responses will be pretty ill-judged. The Fed's record is terrible. What is impressive is how much room they have been cut by the market. I mean, the market is incredibly forgiving uh, to the Fed. The Fed happened for 20 years, 25 years, to benefit from that amazing era as 500 million Chinese erased into the big cities and were plugged from marginal farming into highly profitable industrial system. And then they joined the World Trade Association and uh, made everybody's stuffed dogs and everybody's iPhones for that matter. And during that phase, 500 million extra Chinese, 200 million Eastern Europeans plugging into uh, away from communism into capitalism. That was a golden era. Goldilocks, if ever there was one. And the Fed got to take credit for that. Prime Minister of England once, uh, Mr. Wilson, got re-elected because uh, England unexpectedly won the World Cup at soccer. And uh, he got credit for it. I mean, the president gets, in the end, credit for everything. Good weather. He takes the shot for inflation. These things are all way bigger than the president of the United States. Uh, But uh, the president and the Fed gets to enjoy the environment. So this Fed had a wonderful environment. They did nothing right, but they were seen to be presiding over low inflation and decent growth. The growth rate actually has slowed way down since Greenspan. It was averaging three and a half before Greenspan and averaging two and a half afterwards, and today more like one and a half. So it's done nothing in terms of increasing the growth rate, but superficially, it felt like a golden age because asset prices went up. Asset prices went up because inflation came down and rates were allowed to come down. And in the end, rates were forced down and low rates make uh, leverage uh, cheap, make private equity deals wonderfully easy and profitable. And they push up the price of real estate and they push up the price of stocks. And that's the way it was. And the Fed gets credit for that and is due none. Its demerit accrues from the fact that it uh, kept on pushing down interest rates far too long and dangerously increasing inequality, which, as I like to say, is the greatest poison in the system these days. And it does damage the degree of inequality we have in the US now, does damage the strength of the economy. And that is probably part of the reason why the growth rate has slowed and continues to slow. So now that inflation has arrived, there's a lot of concern that we're entering into a 1970s or 80s scenario of stagflation. As a historian, could you give our audience an idea of what was happening during that period and how it resembles today? Well, every period is unique. The 70s had problems with the oil crises. You can call it one giant crisis or you can call it two or three. But in any case, a triple, quadruple, quintuple the price of oil in a hurry. Uh, We'd come off 50 years of fairly stable, low prices, and they shot up and stayed up for a long time and inflicted enormous pain on the system. They lowered the growth rate. Why wouldn't it if you have to pay three, four times for your energy? And it also, of course, pushes up the price. So there's nothing like an oil price increase to increase stagflation. And it did. And this time, if you adjust for the passage of time, the price of oil is not as high, uh, but it's still multiplied recently by three times. And so that is imposing a pain on consumption and it's imposing inflationary pressure. 
We also have, because of the invasion of Ukraine, we have uh, had some extra spikes in the price of food, fertilizer, and natural gas, particularly in Europe. Interestingly, they are now almost all of them lower in price than the day before the invasion. And this is a lovely example of how the stock market works. The stock market is saying, whoops, there's so much damage from commodity price rises, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that uh, we're going to have a recession. But the recession isn't bad news because the recession is going to get the Fed back in in our camp of uh, lowering interest rates again and helping stock prices. And we're looking out into the future. And therefore, that's a good news. So the fear of a recession becomes a uh, wishful thinking about future interest rates. And so the market gets a reprieve for a while. It's quite remarkable, but it's fairly typical. And that's what we're having now. And that's why we might have a bit of a rally for a few weeks, I think. Yes, what we should cover is how dangerous it is to uh, get involved in a bubble that has more than one asset class, equities, growth stocks mainly. Uh, And this time we've also moved into housing. Housing was chugging along okay, but last year had the biggest advance, 20% in 2021, uh, that it had ever had in history. And it went up to a higher multiple of family income, a house price divided by family income, higher multiple than the peak of the housing bubble of 2006, which is, um, it just means there's a lot of value there that can be uh, lost. And it is dependent on interest rates, as you know, when you're paying a mortgage. At the bottom, the mortgage was two and a half, and it, it went up to 5.7, 5.8. This is a brutal increase in mortgage. It means a lot of people will not move houses who otherwise would have done, which means a lot of people will not take a new job because they're not prepared to double their mortgage payments. Everyone expanded to pay as much mortgage as they could afford, which meant that they put merciless pressure upwards on housing prices as the mortgage rates came down. So that's a problem. And then you have problems with the a bubbly commodities market inflicting pain on consumption. And as if that wasn't enough, we have the lowest interest rates in 6,000 years, as Jim Grant would say, or Edward Chancellor's written a brilliant new book, and uh, the the price of time. And of course, with the lowest rates in 6,000 years, you have the highest bond prices. And that's obviously being taken to the cleaners this year too. So you have bonds, housing, stocks, and commodities. The only people who've tried that were Japan in 89, They're still not back to the price of the equity market. They're still not back to the price of the land and the housing market from 89. That's 33 years and counting. And we did some of that in the housing bubble where the stock market came down in sympathy. And that was brutal. They give you much greater pressure on recessionary forces. And uh, we are playing with fire this time, which was not anywhere near as obvious a year ago uh, before that huge move upwards in housing. The interesting thing about the housing part uh, to me is that with high inflation and to your point about expecting it to have inflation for the years to come is that you, it seems like you'd want to own hard assets so the demand should be there to keep propping up for the foreseeable future. Yes. In the long run, of course, housing and, uh, and stocks are very good protectors of steady inflation. The bad news is that psychologically, inflation is associated with a negative, with a drop in PE from a psychological point of view and, uh, and, and pressure on profit margins in the short term, and then it adjusts, but it's very painful adjusting. And of course, it's associated with a much higher mortgage. But once it's adjusted, then of course, you're in much better shape. The world is much better off with moderately high interest rates. You get money on your savings. People don't speculate as much. They don't leverage as much. 
the risk in the system declines and um, you can afford to buy a house at lower prices and you can afford to buy stocks and build a portfolio. At the moment, at the peak in December, if you're young, you can't get you can't get on the ga- into the game. You can't buy your first house. You can't buy an equity portfolio. The yields are half of what they used to be. If I could squeeze one last question on that, because you mentioned the comparison to the 1970s and how we might have high inflation for years to come and the Fed might just raise rates into that. But we had a very different debt picture back then. I think the debt to GDP was in the 30s rather than the 130s like it is today. Does that? Yeah, yeah. Is that We've a much greater chance of a financial crunch this time than we did in the 70s? A riskier world as if we needed that. So we've just had this supply side recession due to these COVID interruptions. And you mentioned the war in Ukraine, and there's even labor shortages now. Now that things are kind of bouncing a little bit or coming back, but at higher prices, meaning you know things that, have, that inflation has hit the most, do you foresee a demand side recession approaching? Is that sort of the other shoe that's about to drop? I think in the longer term, forget the next few quarters, who knows what happens really. But in the longer term, we are really running the risk that this is back to the 70s. We have uh, problems with the availability of plentiful, cheap resources, and uh, we have problems with plentiful, cheap labor. The birth rate has crunched in every developed country except Israel and China. And um, that's a very, very important segment of the global economy, to say the least. And every one of them has um, a population growth rate lower than replacement level. So in the end, after accumulating lots of older people as a higher and higher percentage, we start to actually uh, have the population drop. Secondly, uh, we're 10 and 20 years in, depending on the country, into having smaller baby cohorts. So we know with absolute certainty, since they're alive already, the 20-year-olds arriving in the marketplace. Uh, will be fewer and fewer for the next uh, 20 years. And we have not experienced this before. This has happened incredibly fast. China has gone from plenty of babies to a baby crunch uh, almost overnight. And uh, fertility rate that needs to be 2.1 is probably running about 1.4. And even in the US, the UK, we're running about 1.7. We've never seen levels like this. So we're going to have a hard time getting enough labor we're going to accumulate old people who are very resource intensive. They need a lot of medical care. They need a lot of people care. And we're not going to have all that many people there. The supply of people to look after us old fogies is dropping steadily from now on for the rest of your life, about, for sure. And at the same time, I believe the correct interpretation of the commodity data is that it wasn't only the China shock, the rapid growth rate, for 30 years in China. But it was also showing signs that the best and cheapest, most plentiful resources had simply been mined or pumped and that we are running down into the second tier. If you look at the copper ore, for example, king copper is really important to the industrial system. Over 80, 90 years, uh, the, the amount of copper in a ton of ore has dropped to a third of what it was. So you're using an awful lot more energy. And the energy also, uh, which used to run for 100 years at $20 a barrel in today's currency, uh, now runs at 100. So you're spending five times the cost of energy to mine one third the quality of copper oil. Uh, You better believe technology can't keep up with that. It did for a long time. It did very, very well. But starting about 2002, the price, the real price of the typical commodity has gone up a lot. It's basically tripled. In 100 years, it went from starting at 100 
it went down to 30. A brilliant help for getting rich. And then uh, from 2002 until today, it's gone from 30 to 90. So over 122 years, commodities are just about flat adjusted for inflation. And only 20 years ago, they were down at 30 cents on the dollar. This is a huge shift. Hasn't been nearly enough fuss made about it. But it's the direction that is interesting to me. The direction is steadily up. Now there's a lot of volatility in commodities, everybody knows. You produce an extra ton and the price collapses and you're short a ton and the price triples. But if you look at the trend, the trend has been pretty remorselessly up since 2002. And my guess is it will continue to rise. And that will pose a real stagflationary pressure for a couple of decades. And that's why I fear this is re-entering the 70s and 80s, if you prefer it, re-entering the 20th century once again. So inflation will always be part of the discussion. Sometimes it will be low, sometimes it will be higher, but it will always be on the agenda. The same with stagflation. There will be pressure on growth that we have not had. We've had a glorious honeymoon period for 20 years where rates always came down and where Chinese workers were always available and inflation was a thing of the past, and it is no longer a thing of the past. And unless we're lucky and have some sensible behavior uh, from governments around the world, this inflation will go in little waves and will become moderately embedded at best and really embedded at worst. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So just to talk about the underlying factors with what you're saying there. So the rise in oil and gas prices, obviously the biggest contributor to this inflation rate that we're seeing. And even with food prices, that's sort of the number one contributor, (laughs) the oil and gas, the energy going into the food and transporting the food. So we just saw our administration tap into their strategic petroleum reserve, the SPR, and it's now at levels not seen in 20 years. So going to your point about these resources, kind of if we're entering the second tier, I think you put it, do you think the US has enough ammunition here to keep the price of oil somewhat stable? Are we going to just keep dwindling in the supply because there's been lack of infrastructure being built and we just don't have the same kind of growth expected in that sector in particular? What the U.S. government does in oil to make things a little easier for this wartime squeeze is inconsequential for the longer term. Uh, It could be quite important in the intermediate term if it tried politically and economically to stimulate fracking. Fracking is um, is the least bad way to have an increase in fossil fuels because um, fracking comes on and in the first year you get half the oil. By the end of the second year, it's basically a done deal. So you don't have stranded assets. The trouble about developing traditional oil fields is they hang around forever around your neck, encouraging you to pump when you shouldn't. There is no such danger in fracking. They come on, they deliver the oil when you need it, and then they're out of business. So they are, from a climate point of view, they're just terrible. But from uh, all things considered point of view, they're the least bad uh, of the fossil fuels for this occasion. I would bring them on for political reasons and to help out with the Ukraine and Europe, I'd bring them on in the near term and uh, have them run off and naturally get out of the way. All right. So sticking on the idea of these resources and the lack of supply, I know you'd never short an individual stock, but given that there is this growing or lack of supply in the battery materials, you mentioned the lithium and copper, a lot of these metals Are electric vehicles or car companies producing electric vehicles, maybe such as Tesla or others, are are they even in a more precarious position than some other companies? Everything to do with decarbonizing the global economy is exposed to the incredible shortages of the necessary metals. And it really is up to us to redesign our way around these bottlenecks before they get too bad. And that means you absolutely have to replace cobalt and secondly, nickel as much as you can to run a whole fleet of EVs that will have to scale up 10 and 20 times the current fleet. And we're doing very quickly, these lithium iron phosphate batteries will take over. And can we be ingenious enough to improve the extraction process of lithium, to discover more lithium reserves, and better yet, to find batteries that don't use lithium. Uh, certainly the large-scale batteries for the grid, you have to get rid of lithium. The scale is too big, and lithium is simply not in enough supply. And they're working on that. There are dozens of research groups working on large-scale battery storage. But even for EVs, it would be brilliant 
to have a replacement for lithium. Whether that is possible, I don't know. Is it going to pose a, a price problem? Almost certainly, yes, from time to time. And uh, as every mining industry goes in lurches, so you go from excess to shortage, excess to shortage. It is terrifying to be short or long. Uh, value managers have always hated uh, commodities for that reason. It feels completely out of their control, and it largely is. They're about as unpredictable as anything on the planet. And uh, if you go short, you die a thousand deaths. And if you go long, it's pretty much as bad. So I, I certainly don't recommend uh, people to go short the metals. If you can go long and throw the key away, I think that will do just fine. It does take nerves of steel and you better have a good look at your nerves before you do it. It seems like there's never a free lunch. And even with these companies that are doing great for climate change, whether they're producing electric vehicles or what have you, there's always a other side of the coin. And maybe it's the lithium mining aspect and the implications there. So then you have these ESG policies coming up. It's been a hot topic as of late, but it's getting a very bad rap, I would say. Also, as an environmentalist, how effective do you think the ESG policies are as currently written? They're better than nothing. They're better than a kick in the pants. It, it's uh, early stage. It's a little amorphous, a little airy-fairy at this stage. I admire the people trying to sort it out. There's a lot of greenwashing involved, of course, like most first stages. In the end, I think it's a helpful effort to encourage people to report their carbon footprints and so on is to encourage them to do something about it. So it isn't brilliant. It could be done better, of course, but yes, it is certainly better than nothing. And I like to say to an audience, if I'm asked to speak on the topic, let me be honest, I'm an email, you know, S&G, good behavior is great. What can you say bad about good behavior? E is a question of our survival. So uh, I would hate S&G to get in the way of the environment. Because if we don't get that right, uh, we will spiral out of control. You could say we are showing early signs of doing exactly that. The damage to the environment is happening far faster and more powerfully, actually, than anyone predicted uh, 20 years ago. And I was talking to these guys 20 years ago, and the scientists were pretty understated, I can tell you. Nine years ago, I got a commentary in Nature, which is a miracle in itself, because it's the most important scientific journal. And the commentary was aimed at the scientists being so wimpy. And it said, you know, be brave, be arrested if necessary. Be honest, you guys. You're being much too conservative. And being conservative in climate change is entirely risky. If conservatism on the part of the scientists caused politicians to underreact, that, that could be catastrophic. You can't criticize them today. The tone has completely changed. The UN's report, the IPCC, the last one a few months ago, it contains an opening salvo that says we are losing, we are working in a closing window uh, to basically protect a viable society, a viable habitat. It, it's really enough to make your hair curl, uh, the implications of their opening statement. The numbers hadn't changed that much, but the language had changed enormously as they begin to pluck up the courage to say it like it is. They were intimidated by politics and they were intimidated by uh, not wanting to seem to exaggerate and not wanting to get involved in publicity, protect the dignity of science. Well, this is more important than the dignity of science. It's absolutely important that they say what they honestly believe. And most of them do today. But all you have to do is pick up a newspaper, really, to get religion. And you see the rate uh, which heavy flooding in particular. Heavy flooding was always going to be the most predictable. Every time the temperature notches up 
a tenth of a degree centigrade, the air takes more water vapor. And the only thing that guarantees, ironically, is not more rain, but it guarantees heavier downpours. And heavy downpours do damage to farming. They erode the soil. It's only the very heavy downpours that erode the soil. And we are skating on thin ice and no one talks about that. We have eroded 90% of our safety margin. We're now, we have sufficient soil in the great growing areas, but we only have an inch or two extra where we used to have a foot or so extra. So our safety margin has been used up and we're losing it at about 1% a year. So depending on where you are, we only have 40 to 70 years of good agriculture left. If you do it this way, we have to change the way we do agriculture. Heavy tilling allows the soil to blow away, wash away and carry, incidentally, two thirds of the fertilizer with it. And if you want to really worry about resources, fertilizer is obviously a finite resource. We mine it, we ship it, we truck it, we scatter it on the farms and it washes away. And it can't be replaced. It's an element. There's no substitute without potassium and phosphate. You cannot grow any living thing. And we have to learn to allow the bedrock, the underlying bedrock underneath the farm land supplies enough uh, if you do it right. Obviously, nature managed to grow a pretty lush planet before humans without any uh, fertilizer, without any artificial fertilizer. It can be done, but you can't do it with big ag. Big ag is enormously destructive of the resources, and uh, we're just eating our way through. And people say, oh, don't worry, we have 150 years. Hey, dudes, we have 150 years. The trouble is potash is very largely in uh, Belarus and Russia. If that makes you happy, it doesn't make me happy. And half of the African countries are short of potash this year because of the war. And the price has gone through the roof and, and they can't afford it. And they're going to, in many cases, go short of food and are, as we said already, and by next year, it will be hell on wheels. So this is not good. And, and um, phosphate is 70% in Morocco, 70% of all the world's 150 years of reserves are in Morocco. I tell you one thing, if there's a civil war or something like that, a takeover of Morocco, you will have the Chinese and the Americans and the EU wanting to interfere immediately, because without them, we simply don't have enough to get through more than a few decades. You're talking about agriculture there. and It's reminding me of just the food supply question in general, because our audience listening to you, everyone, I think has the intention to do better and to make the planet better over time. And you hear these theories along the way about how much what you eat is a contributing factor to climate change. I'm kind of curious, is that one of the bigger contributions? Is that something people can take home and change in their behavior most immediately? Or what are some of the biggest contributors actually affecting climate change that we should focus on? I think that most easily correctable is methane leakage. That's just a question of regulation. An awful lot of it comes from uh, fracking and the series of pipes that go all the way from North Dakota to Boston and up to your gas stove. And they're leaking all the way. And the pipes in Boston are medieval practically. So they all leak. And if they leak more than 3%, which almost certainly they do, then uh, natural gas is worse than coal. Because methane, as it leaks, is in the short term, 100 times worse than uh, than carbon dioxide. So that's probably the thing we could do the most about. Regulations for fracking, regulations for pipeline leakage, and uh, regulations for dumps. Uh, Dumps also produce a lot of methane. And you you can use it, you can recover it. And in most of that, 
recovery is will make you money. It may not be the highest return on your agenda that year, but it's a positive return. You save it and you sell it. So that should be pretty high up the list. That's number one. Number two, of course, if you eat more grains and less red meat, that has a huge effect. That would be a good second candidate. The trouble with that is expecting humans to change their ways. And, um, you know, if humans were prepared to change their ways, we wouldn't be worried about climate change. We've had the technology to live perfectly decent lives without having generated all the trouble that we have. Our big problem is the gap between what humans are capable of doing and what humans actually do. And uh, to ask them to all transfer away from meat is a big ask. If you could do it, it would be in second place. In real life, you know, it may be fifth or sixth place. You probably have more chance improving shipping and regulating them than you do getting people to eat a lot less red meat. They don't like, humans do not like being told that kind of thing even if it's for the public good. There are people who respond to the public good. The Japanese are brilliant. At it. If you tell the Japanese to do a, use a little less electricity because there's been a crisis, electricity will drop 25% the next day. We know that because it happened. And a year later, it will still be down 25%. If you ask Americans, it would be down 6% the next day. And in a month, it would be down 4%. And in a year, you wouldn't be able to see it. And this has to do with the social contract. How much do you trust your neighbors? How much are you willing to sacrifice for your neighbors? And because of Confucius or because of Buddhism in Asian countries, they tend to be naturally and more respectful of authority of the of old fogies and uh, of their neighbors. It is just part of their culture. They have done so much better at COVID. It isn't even funny. Uh, in Japan, they had no regulations worth talking about. The burden was carried by individuals and they have had, get this, one twentieth of the death rate of the U.S., with the oldest population in the world. Amazing. So there are companies that are creating new kinds of red meat or you know the Beyond Meats of the world and even Tyson Foods. And we've talked about other ways that we could fight climate change. I'm kind of curious. I know you're mostly focused on venture these days, but I'm wondering if which public companies or venture companies that might become public down the road, what do those companies look like? Who are going to be the ones that are most contributing to actually fight climate change, whether it be ones that are focused on fusion or solar or geothermal? or food? I mean, what do you think would be you know, the, the most promising technology you've seen to date? I don't want to get into wishful thinking, but um, basically as a society, we, we show all of the signs that failing societies in history have shown. And the top of the list is hubris. Oh, you know, you've been saying bad things for 100 years and it didn't work out. You think the Romans didn't say that 400 years and so on, and some of the civilizations uh, down in Central America were around for a thousand years. And, you know, they built water storage, they built aqueducts, and they had wonderful armies, but eventually they fall foul of a lot of failings. And we check them all off. We have we look like a, a failing civilization, but, but I'm hoping we have a little escape clause. We have a couple of things going for us that have never worked before. One of them is population. There has never been a gleam in the eye of Malthus and the boys that we would choose, even as we got wealthier, that we would choose to have fewer children. This is kind of remarkable. And then adding on top of our choice is the fact that the world is getting so toxic that even when you decide to have children, it's now getting to be much harder. One way or the other, we are likely to have, over the next couple of hundred years, a declining population. And we have some chance... Uh, that that will be a great help 
it isn't a sufficient condition, but it is a necessary condition. The planet, under any circumstances, could not support the 10 billion that one reads about all the time uh, for 100 years. It can't be done. We would need two and a half to three planets to cope with that. We can perhaps deal with a couple of billion, and we might get there quite gracefully. And the other one, of course, is technology. And the rebuttal to the technology argument is that every wave of technology takes more energy. Bang. And it takes more complexity, which is a killer, because complexity itself is a failing characteristic. It takes too much effort, too much manpower, too much energy itself. And if that wasn't enough, it, it increases your chutzpah, your overconfidence, every wave of scientific progress. And so it, it can be quite deadly. But this time, we have some open-ended technologies. I call them get-out-of-jail-free cars. And they are, because they're almost infinite, fusion, geothermal, and brilliantly cheap, effective storage. Any one of those three, and we may get out of jail because that's enough cheap energy, green cheap energy, to in the long run take care of poverty if we chose to, for sure, and take care of climate change. The thing about climate change is when we finish, uh, we started 150 years ago with uh, 280 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's only a little bit, but it's a very powerful commodity. If we had no parts, we would be frozen at minus 20 to 25 degrees centigrade, a frozen ball with just bacteria around if we were lucky. And so it's a very, very potent greenhouse gas. And we started with 280 parts per million. We're up to 420. That's a bigger jump than the difference between the ice age, two miles of ice on Manhattan, and the pleasant enough world that we have now. That's a bigger jump. The ice age gap was just 100, 120 points, and we have just gone up by 160. And we're going to go up to about 525, and we need to go back to 300. So we're going to have to get rid of 225 parts per million of carbon dioxide as well as methane. And if you want to think about the carbon dioxide, that is 2 trillion tons or more. That is the absolute minimum. Two trillion tons absolutely has to be taken out of the atmosphere over the next couple of hundred years. And the Grantham Foundation, that's all we do with our private investments, our venture capital. We have a team of half a dozen, and all we do is focus on carbon dioxide extraction biologically and every other method that we can get at. But that needs a huge amount of energy. However you do it, you're going to need a lot of energy. So one of our get-out-of-jail-free cards would be very handy indeed. And what are the probabilities? I think there's probably 50-50 that fusion uh, in the next few decades will come out with a a viable engineering system, engineering and and physics. The thing that I have doubt about is is the cost. Uh, They're going to be fairly costly plants. But 50-50 will have the technology and maybe it will be cheap and maybe it will not be cheap enough. Geothermal looks incredibly promising because the fracking industry has gone through the most amazing set of experiments, tens of thousands of wells, pushing, prodding, experimenting, shocking the the rock, using extra special mixtures of uh, liquids to pump down and lateral drilling. It's really been a a revolution of engineering uh, talent. And if you could take all of that which we can, and apply it to geothermal, and then start the same process with geothermal. It would be almost surprising if we couldn't, at least in some parts of the world, have a really economically viable uh, source of energy. And the heat from the center of the planet here is more or less 
infinite. So that would do. And the third one would be a, a brilliant breakthrough in storage. We've come down to 10 cents on the dollar in the last 15 years. If we could come down once again over the next 20 or 30 years uh, to 10 cents on the dollar, or even 20, we'd probably do it. We wouldn't need uh, fusion or geothermal. Any one of those three will give us a chance of success. The problem is how much of the planet spirals out of control because of food problems, energy problems, creating failed states of the kind that we begin to see in Africa. And if the temperature alone continues to rise, the whole Indian subcontinent becomes very questionable as to whether you could do regular farming. It has a wonderful share of the world's arable land. If you see one of these maps, which is green for arable, you will see that India is one of the few places where practically the entire subcontinent is green. Uh, the problem is, once you get over 35 degrees centigrade, which is uh, about 95 Fahrenheit, and you get humidity with it, you can't stay out more than a few hours. And they recently had 45 degrees centigrade for three weeks, as you probably read, the hottest they have ever had. Uh, fortunately, it was dry as could be. And humans can deal with that because we sweat and it reduces our temperature. But if it arrived in the monsoon season, then people die. They can only be out in the open for three or four hours until their internal organs cease to function. Now, this is not good. And furthermore, it is really quite likely that those temperatures will afflict the Indian subcontinent within, if they're lucky, you know, 60, 70, 80 years. And if they're unlucky, 30 or 40. So they better start preparing. And that's a pretty tricky job when you talk about farming, because th their idea of farming is not an air-conditioned tract as it is in Minnesota. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Yeah, so Elon Musk shares a lot of these opinions you just mentioned around fusion and the scalability or the question around it and how economically viable that is. Also, the fusion thing is interesting because we do have another infinite source of heat and that's the sun and it's you know it requires no maintenance right so solar would be the most obvious thing according to Elon Musk you only need 100 miles by 100 miles in like some corner of Texas right of solar to power the entire US but to your point about storage that's the biggest bottleneck. I mean, similar. That's why oil is so great. It's so easily transferable. Incidentally, I, I have to interject here that it sounds as if he actually stole that one from me. <laughs> he very I well could have. Hundred miles by hundred miles. I use Utah because I I drove around looking for a, a state park that was about that size and couldn't find it. So if you think of ten thousand square miles and you think of a square mile outside Boston or maybe four of them. You think, oh my God, that's epic. And 10,000 of them seems impossible. But when you think of 100 miles by 100 miles in Utah, this seems eminently doable. And if the Chinese put themselves to it, which they will probably, uh, they, they will do 100 miles by 100 miles. And they are scaling up. Oh boy, is China taking control of these important industries? And, and we are kind of, uh, of allowing them to get a, a really big jump start. They have five to 600,000 electric buses and we have 1,500. They make over half the electric cars. When was the last great technology where the U.S. lagged the change? You know, we're, we're buying five or 6% this year of electric vehicles. They're buying 20. Europe's approaching 20. Norway's 70. And why are we so far behind on something this important? We usually lead the chart. It's inexplicable. Anyway. Everything that matters, wind and high-tech transmission lines, my God, we have really medieval. We have three or four separate transmission lines. We couldn't send electricity into Texas. They have their own grid when they had that terrible freeze-up and everyone was in danger of, of dying of cold. We couldn't send them any of our electricity because there's no grid. And what grid there is is antique and ill-kept up. And China has thousands of miles of high-tech, ultra-high voltage DC lines. And they also control uh, the manufacture of solar panels, the manufacture of the materials that go into solar panels, the refining of lithium, the refining of cobalt. If you make an enemy of China, you you should be well advised to um, make sure that you can get by without their, their goodies. I'm not sure that we have done that. Well, I love what you said earlier about if you were in charge, you would make some effort to, to boost the gas in the in the interim because it's it's interesting how we politicize these things. It becomes binary where we have to be pro green or not pro green. And when I mentioned the hundred miles by hundred miles to your quote there, it gives people hope. It see it makes it more achievable, or people can kind of start to wrap their heads around it, which is it makes it not such a you know steep mountain to climb. I'm also bullish on the fusion side of things and nuclear side of things, and, and the EU. Parliament actually just labeled or they're pushing to label gas and nuclear investments as quote unquote green. Do you think this is sort of a a lead domino in some way to help get the US to get similar regulations involved? Is this a a sign of better things to come on that side of the argument? 
Well, some of this is wartime related, so you have to make exceptions. They're really in a squeeze. And uh, to call gas green is uh, a desperate and inaccurate when it's in real life, it's often worse than coal. But they're in a crisis. So you've got to, in a sense, cut them some slack for a little while. Uh, I'm hoping that this wall will, yes, it will be a step backwards in for coal and so on, but it will be a giant step forward because the message about the Ukraine is never, ever be this dependent on Russia again, which means never be dependent on natural gas again, which means get your nuclear and above all wind and solar going at warp speed. And they will. So this will have moved the agenda uh, considerably forward on a 20-year horizon and considerably backwards on a two-year horizon. But that's life. Uh, you have to make those compromises. But to think positive thoughts since you started on that. So we have the, I'm putting my thumb up here, we have the get-out-of-jail-free cards, nuclear, and, and you could include fission if we, if we got religion and did it right, and so on. We have the three great kind of infinite sources of energy. That's very optimistic. And secondly, seen through my eyes in the VC world, the green VC world, there is an enormous number of brilliant companies working on a thousand different improvements to the green tech world. And I've got to say, they're highly motivated. They're not just capitalists. I am almost shocked that they're either Oscar-winning performers, all of them, or they genuinely care about uh, helping the green business, as do a lot of young people these days. They really put more of a premium suddenly on doing something useful. And so it's very agreeable working with these people. And they're the best that money can buy. A lot of them are imported, if you will, from foreign countries. It's surprising how many successful VC enterprises are run by immigrants and first, second generation immigrants too. So it, it's a pleasure working with them. It's a pleasure dealing with really bright people who are working for the cause. They are much more cooperative than normal. Of course, they're competitive as well, and they all want to make a fortune, which is great. That's how the best part of capitalism. But they are more cooperative than any other branch of capitalism that you will find. And, uh, and we, being in the philanthropy business, we, of course, see that very clearly. Anyway, there's an enormous amount of terrific work going on. And America is so good at it. We're the biggest, the best. We have the great research universities. The last time I saw a list of 20, we had 15 and the Brits had three. That's practically a death grip. And they are so important for green tech. So important for venture capital in general, but much more for green tech than most, because that's all based on pure science. Some of the social apps are just based on, an, on a smart idea, but almost everything in green tech gets its start in pure scientific research. And the, the willingness of Americans to spin out and become capitalist research engineers is profound. And it, it's just spreading. It used to be almost unheard of in England and now at Imperial College and elsewhere, there's a real buzz going on. And in, I am told in Europe, and I haven't seen it for myself, the rest of Europe, I should say. Thankfully, the U.S. seems to be leading the charge on that front. But I know that you estimate the U.S. on, we're just talking rates of return. We should have a much more underwhelming performance for years to come in the markets versus, say, emerging markets. And you had this great interview recently with Ray Dalio. And Ray obviously believes that we're entering into this new world order. And he expects a lot of internal conflict to start arising in, in the years ahead. But it's coming, I think, maybe sooner than expected. We're currently seeing, you know, we're, as of today, we're seeing bank runs 
in China. We're seeing riots and protests in Sri Lanka. We're seeing Italy protests, Albania, even Germany because of lack of food and high inflation. Given this macro picture and these current events, how are you currently thinking about the risks in emerging markets? Yeah, no, the risks of destabilizing the whole global system have risen and continue to rise. It is quite scary, but the risks are in the developed world too, as you were implying us. But the speed with which Sri Lanka went from ho-ho, you know, boring, boring, jogging along okay, to complete chaos. I mean, that is that is shocking, isn't it? The whole system, it took about less than two years to go from, to an outsider anyway, looking pretty stable to looking out of control. So it doesn't take much. And when you mess with food, you know, the, the Tahrir Square days of the Arab Spring, they chanted bread, freedom, dignity, bread, freedom, dignity. And, but bread was first. And that was just based on a, a temporary 150% increase in the price of wheat. Well, we just had another one that was 150% increase in the price of wheat. And there's likely to be pretty powerful repercussions around the whole of Africa and the Middle East and who knows where. The thing about these pressure points is often unexpected like Sri Lanka. Things you you didn't have on your radar screen suddenly blow up. So these are tricky times for emerging and they're tricky times for developed. You know, bad things can happen anywhere. In the U.S., you'd have to say our democracy uh, looks to be in the worst shape for, for 80, 100 years or more, through my eyes, with um, attempts to uh, overthrow democracy, as far as one can tell. And some very suddenly right-wing countries, Hungary, so on. It, um, it's dangerous times without a war. And, and ironically, the war may uh, improve some things, but it certainly increases the aggregate risk of some terrible mistake being made. So whether, whether that's materially worse in emerging or not, I don't know. In the end, resources will become more important. As I like to say, it doesn't take much for the four loaves of bread for a haircut to become four haircuts for a loaf of bread. In the end, a loaf of bread is more important than a haircut. And they, um, they have a lot of the world's resources out there in the emerging world. And maybe that will turn out to be a trump card. One quote I've heard you throw out there about the environment is that the issue is essentially we are compounding on an infinite planet. And a lot of these issues we're seeing out in the world today, I can just hear the Bitcoin maximalists in our audience you know, pounding the table that we are trying to compound with an infinite currency. And if we talk about things like methane being the biggest contributor to climate change, there's already some promising tech out there about Bitcoin consuming the excess methane you know, that's offshooting on some plants and, and repurposing it into green energy just to simply mine more Bitcoin. And I've actually heard you mention Bitcoin a little bit more as of late in some interviews. And Gary Gensler even just said that Bitcoin is the only crypto he would define as a commodity. So I'm just kind of curious, with all of this floating around and given your bullishness on commodities in general, are you also potentially bullish on Bitcoin? No. No, blockchain is going to have legs, as they say in variety. It'll be around for decades and, and it'll be put to uses that make money. There'll be little services that will do currency exchange and so on, and it'll be cheap and so on. And that's just capitalism that will work uh, and it will work the same old way. You'll, you'll make profits and, and dividends and so on. But um, Bitcoin is not that. A Bitcoin is not a, a good reserve of value. As we've seen, it's traded like a spec. It's lost two thirds of its value very quickly. What kind of store of value is that? It's terrible for a currency exchange. It's expensive to transact. 
But worst of all, it is deadly to the environment. It's incredibly energy intensive to give you what? To give you a speculative instrument to wager on. That's it. That someone else will pay even more. But the fact that it takes our precious energy and has a carbon footprint is the worst crime of all. And the sooner it goes away, the better. So even if it were used to, say, close a wealth inequality gap, which I've heard you say is you know, the ultimate evil in the world today, I'm just wondering if there's any other tools that come to mind that would be able to do such a thing. No, as a speculative instrument, it's made a lot of money for a couple of hundred people who got in early with a lot. Most of the other people playing it have now lost money. We know that. It's the same old, same old. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So any attempt to spin this as an equalizer is just that. It's pure spin. This is like going short. You know, you have to leave it to the pros. While we're winding down here, I have some other questions around the birth rate that you mentioned earlier, because I do see that as a a very big threat. And right now we currently have two job openings for every one person in the US. And I'm kind of more curious about what is causing that? If it's just COVID overhang, if it's having an aging population, the declining birth rate is it a, is a confluence of everything. And just your general thoughts on why we're seeing wealthier people have less kids over time. Do you have any theory behind that based on maybe other times in history? No, I think it's a major surprise. You could flip that around and say it was a major surprise that people chose to have big families. They're expensive. Uh, they take all your time and energy. They take all your money to a holidays to um, Borneo. I mean, and as the cost of education has gone through the roof, in real terms, adjusted for inflation, the cost of education has risen remorselessly. It now costs, if you have three or four children, you, you need a million dollars of after-tax money to get them through uh, colleges and et cetera. And um, you could say it was amazing we had so many children for so long. It's easy to sympathize with taking the easy way of having one or two children or no children. And uh, particularly if you're a woman just getting on with your life and not having to drag a man and, and two children around. So I have no real understanding of why it came on so quickly in the last 40 years. And um, there is a lot of short-term stuff here with COVID, but it's as if COVID borders the time to reflect on what we were getting from our job. And a lot of crummy jobs didn't seem worth the effort. And so people we're quicker to resign. And um, we still haven't reached the utilization rate. I'm sorry, what is it called? The percentage of people working is way down from 2000. In 2000, we had about as high a uh, participation rate as anyone on the uh, planet. And since then, ours has come down. The Italians and so on have gone up. And we have one of the lower participation rates, which is really the definition of unemployment. How many people do you have? What fraction are working? And the rest are, in a sense, unemployed. And we do not equal the EU. Uh, The way we state the unemployment rate, we're always very proud. But we have more people not working than Europe does. And they seem to have found a new willingness to uh, resign if the job is crummy and they're not paid enough. And they have been treated diabolically badly since about 1975. If you look at the increase for an hour worked, it's up 10 or 15% adjusted for inflation in 45 years. And in France, it's up 150%. And if you read Business Week, as I like to say, it would have appeared over that 45 years that we had done nothing but kick French bottoms because of eurosclerosis, French incompetence, bureaucrats, et cetera, et cetera. They take too much time off. They have long holidays. But when they work, 
they're very productive and they get paid a ton more money than they used to. And we do not. Even the lowly Brits are up 60%. The Japanese are up over 100 How is it that our average hour worked in manufacturing has done so badly? And it's because we have had decent aggregate productivity, but all of those gains have flowed to the top 10%, a lot of it to the top 1%, et cetera, and a lot of that to the top 0.1%. And I, in a way, I speak as the 0.1%, and it's had its advantages. It's funded the Grantham Foundation. And that in itself, I warmly recommend to old fogies that you, you have a sense of purpose and a green agenda is a terrific sense of purpose. And as I have explained, incredibly entertaining and stimulating as well. And the very best corner of the American capitalist system, which is otherwise looking a little, as I say, fat and happy. I mean, they're not doing the same entrepreneurial stuff that they did in the 60s. In the 60s, everybody was out for market share, always opening a new factory, which as a portfolio manager was very irritating. Just as things got tight, they would all, all five companies in the paper business would all open new mills at the same time and ruin the profits. Now they don't. Now they sit on the expansion. They expand very reluctantly and uh, they concentrate on profits. They keep the staff lean and mean. Uh, it's brilliant uh, for uh, the management who have their stock options and the buyback program, uh, but it's bad for growth. And so the profit margins in the last, in the Goldilocks era, profit margins have been 30, 40% above the previous 100 years. Uh, brilliant for uh, management and brilliant for stockholders and fairly rotten for the economy uh, where the growth has steadily slowed down. Yeah, and the uh, compensation differential is greater than ever. I think in the Henry Ford era, you've said that I think was 40 to one as far as management to lowest paid employee. Now it's in the 300 or 400 range, somewhere of that yeah. sort. Yeah, it depends how you calculate it, but 1965, it was 40 to 1, which seems like a lot, doesn't it? 40 times the average worker in your plant. And in Japan, it was about 40 to 1. Today, it's still about 40 to 1 in Japan. They have no rules. It's just a social contract. They thought it was unseemly to increase it much more from 40 to 1. And we've increased it 300 to 1. And it's basically get as much as you can. Milton Friedman has basically advocated a sociopathic capitalism, which is your only responsibility is to maximize profits, which is interpreted as maximizing short-term profit, which is, we think, my colleague James Montier attempts to prove that this is really bad for business, and I believe it. It's just not a good business policy to maximize short-term profits or even short to intermediate-term profits. You should try and maximize very long-term profits, and very few companies do that for the time being. And uh, if a human being adopted that policy, I am only interested in what's in it for me. We call them a sociopath. That's it. So we have sociopathic capitalism for the time being. And back in the 60s, we did not. They did pension plans that were very generous. They didn't have to. They were inventing them in the 60s and 70s. And very good they were too. And they shared the money around. And the growth rate of the economy was much more vigorous. The whole system was functioning much better than it does today. Having said that, we do have an unfair share of the great new enterprises. And they all sprung out of our venture capital industry. Every one of the fangs is seen through my eyes a newbie. When we were starting GMO, uh, we hired away employee number 26 from Microsoft. <laughs> Customer fortune, incidentally. And only Microsoft and Apple are about as old as we are. And the rest are teenagers. I mean, they're kids. And yet they're, they're some of the greatest companies in the world. And yes, they have benefited from total lack of justice department effort on uh, monopoly. They're all instant monopolies. And in every industry, the concentration has gone up and the monopoly factor has gone up. And the profit margins 
confirm that. Profit margins are way off to scale high compared to the rest of the world and compared to American history uh, prior to 2000. So we have very abnormally high profit margins, rather disappointing growth and abnormally high PEs. Uh, this is known as double jeopardy because we know what explains PEs, by the way. We have a wonderful model that's 25 years old and has a, a correlation coefficient that's so high I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't done it. Uh, participated in the process. And it says that the PEs are not a function of predicting the way we've been told for 100 years, that they're a coincident indicator of what makes portfolio managers feel comfortable. Inflation is number one. If you have low inflation, you have a high PE. If you have high inflation for five years, you have a miserable PE. And the second one is profit margin. If you have a high profit margins, you have a high PE, a low profit margin, it's a low PE. And way, way down in third place is the volatility of growth. Growth doesn't count. The bouncing around of growth is what makes people feel comfortable or uncomfortable. They'd rather have two, 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 two percent than, you know, six minus two. Even if that averaged three, they prefer the stable two. That's what the model says. And what the model says today is the model is calling for 20, which is very high, 20 on a Schiller PE. And the actual price today is 30 on a Schiller PE, down from 38. And 30 is very, very high. It's in the top couple of percent of all time. So we're still very, very exposed. And the model has been falling like stone because every month of unexpected inflation is cranking the PE down. So this decline has not even closed the gap. The model has been falling as fast as the market has been falling. So we still have this one-third gap. And secondly, as the uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's begin to say, the second shoe is going to drop, which is profits. So you have even a mild recession, you get a big whack from profit margin and the PE goes down, but also the earnings you're multiplying it goes down. So uh, it is quite likely and plausible that uh, the PEs will continue to drop and the earnings will drop in recession. Well, given your focus on green energy, we've covered a lot of ground here between you know reasons to be hopeful, reasons to be concerned. I'd like to wrap up the conversation on the hopeful side. And I'd like to give you the opportunity to speak to our audience about where they can focus their energies if they're just entering the workforce. Um, your focus is heavily on green energy and green VC and tech. What are the ways you recommend people entering the workforce focus on so that they do have that purpose you were speaking about? Well, it is a particularly hard time to get into green tech because the bubble breaking has hurt on a short-term basis, has hurt venture capital, of course, and they're not looking to increase their staff, which is most unfortunate. But in the long run, that would be at the top of my list. Venture capital in general would be second. It, it's quite unlike the rest of capitalism. It's brilliant new ideas. It's generating growth. It's more exciting and in the end, more rewarding. So I would do that. In third place, just make sure that you're joining a firm that's pretty enlightened because enlightenment on the green front is going to decide very much who the winners and losers are. History is full of examples where a big trend comes in. Some companies fight it tooth and nail, and it often costs them their existence. And some companies grit their teeth and say, oh, well, it's inconvenient, but what the hell is coming? Let's get on board and run as hard as we can. And they're the successful ones. Be careful about it. Everyone's greenwashing these days. But you can probably tell who is reasonably sincere. And there's quite a lot of companies, I would say a quarter of them, are really quite interested in uh, setting a good example. It may be for their clients, it may be for the general public, but who cares? If you do the right thing, I'm not going to examine too closely your motives. Anyway, so 
make sure you're with one of those firms and uh, you'll be fine. And then in your private lives, vote green, hustle green, do whatever you can, eat a little less red meat, get an electric vehicle and take for the upper middle class, the most painful of all, take a fewer uh, jet flights until one day, perhaps they have uh, a green version. Well, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for coming back on the show. Uh, It's been a year since we last spoke. And and if you're listening to this and you enjoyed the episode, I highly recommend you go back to episode 371 and listen to Jeremy and his thoughts at that time, because so much of what he's talking about is transpiring as we're speaking today. And Jeremy, I'd love it if we could circle back maybe another year from now and think about all the what's happened. Uh, It'll not be boring and it's interesting times we're living in. So thank you for taking some of your very valuable time and uh, sharing it with us today. You're entirely welcome. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.